Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Coffee, do whatever, use the restroom and come back. Um, but you guys are really well trained, so <laughs> you all get a star on my refrigerator. As Travis mentioned, um, and I, I like doing this just by way of introduction. And actually, I should ask one or two people that we recognize, my wife and I. But if you know us, it might be easier. Just raise your hand, just so I get an idea. So there's the, the literally just one, literally two, two, three people. The only reason I say that is because I, when I get invited to guest speak at a place, I like to give my testimony real quickly just so you know the bag of crazy that you're getting. Um, so, and let's, let's open in a word of prayer and then we will get into it real quickly. But uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. Lord, what a blessing it is to fellowship with the brothers and sisters here in Rochester. Lord, we just give you the glory for the work that you've done here and continue to do here and pray, God, for your continued blessing. I pray that as we open up your word, you would speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that our hearts are also being prepared to celebrate communion this morning. We love you, Lord, and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. And I don't recall which of the brothers I was talking to, but I, I said probably the last time I spoke here, I said it was years ago, and he, I mean, it has to be, and I don't know how long Don and Teresa have been here in Rochester. I know it's been 20. Somebody want to nod their head? It might have been 15, 20 years ago was the last time I spoke here. I really made a, I, I was so terrible that Don never invited me back. <laughs> now that's not the case. And we've, we've got a lot of connections with Don and Teresa, not only just the amount of years we've been in ministry together, um, seeing them in conferences, phone calls, things like that. But Teresa's sister attended our fellowship. It had to have been a long time ago as well when we were in Bloomington probably more than 10, 12, 15 years ago. But uh, as, uh, as was mentioned, my name is Mike Fernandez. I pastor Calvary Chapel Twin Cities. Um, I was in the Marine Corps from 79 to 83, and I'm just going to go through this real quickly. I was, I was brought up Catholic. I grew up here in Minnesota. Spent a couple years in the Corps, and when I got stationed out in California, I had been warned by a good friend of mine that I was in the weather service. I, I actually repaired weather equipment, radar, comm gear, that type of stuff, facsimile. Um, but a, a buddy of mine who was also in the weather field, he had warned me, he says, hey, I hope you get stationed in California. We can party, chase girls, all the things that the Marines do who are non-believers. And... Uh, he warned me about this guy. He says, just watch out for this guy, Sam. He's always sharing the gospel with people, wants people to get saved. And I remember thinking, I'm a good person. I go to church regularly. I don't need to get saved. And sure enough, I get stationed there. Sure enough, I ended up working for Sam. He was a staff sergeant. At the time, I was a corporal. And Sam would... Any opportunity, he could turn every conversation into an opportunity to share the gospel. Didn't matter what you talked about. You could be talking about sports. You know, and then he would, well, you know, there's a struggle between good and evil. And he just always bring it back to the gospel, what Jesus had done. And I always felt really, like, bad, convicted around him. It's just like, I don't like feeling this conviction. I'm a good person. I kept thinking in my own heart, my just I would avoid conversation. And, and, and it was a small unit. There was little, only about four of us that worked in this special little facility that we had um, right on the flight line, right next to the air traffic control tower, the weather service. But one day he challenged me after several months of working with him. He said, do you believe the Bible is God's word? And I said, yeah, I haven't brought up Catholic and going to schools, Catholic schools, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, a little bit of Catholic college. I remember thinking, yeah, I believe the Bible's God's word. I couldn't defend that, but I thought that's what we were taught. You know, the Bible is the word of God. But I also knew it was going to end with him somehow 
I'm a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. You need to repent, accept Jesus, invite him into your heart. You know, I remember I knew it was going to go that So I, I kind of cushioned the answer by saying, well, yeah, I believe the Bible's God's word, but I think you can make it say anything you want. And you can if you take things out of context. But he took me to Romans chapter tw 10. And he said, if you can make it say anything you want, he said, well, why don't you read Romans chapter 10 and then tell me what you think it says. And it was the portion of scripture where Paul writes that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And in that moment that I read that, all of a sudden the light went on and something in my heart understood that that's exactly the simplicity of the gospel. And he said, what do you think it means? And I told him, it sounds like if you believe in Jesus and confess him as Lord, that you're saved. And I remember thinking at that moment, if salvation is so simple, I would be foolish not to accept Jesus. And he said, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord? And I said, yeah, I think I'll wait. No, I didn't. <laughs> I thought, yes, I do. And he led me in prayer. There was a little doubt, you know, in my mind. I'm thinking, you know, is this a cult? Am I going to end up in the cult? Am I going to be selling flowers at the airport dressed in long robes? And I mean, if you're old enough, you remember kind of those references, the Moonies, the Hare Krishnas, things like that. But I remember that moment that I asked Jesus into my heart, which would have been 43 years ago in the fall, I was changed. I knew his presence in my life. And Sam quickly just shared with me Acts 2.42, the things, kind of foundations that are important for a new believer. Being in God's word, being in prayer, fellowship, and communion. And I remember, uh, and this was on a Wednesday, on a Friday, he asked me, what are you doing on Sunday? And he said, I want you to come to church with me. And I remember thinking, again, too, I'm a baby believer. I, I accepted Jesus, now I have to go to your church? But he took me to a Calvary Chapel that was at the time in Dana Point. And that was my exposure, my first exposure to Calvary Chapel. But, you know, first exposure to worship, because people were expressing their love and their adoration to God. I grew up where you go to church and people sang, and you know, it was just kind of a routine. Some people that could sing sang, some that didn't, couldn't, wouldn't, you know, they just didn't. But it was like people were really pouring out their heart to the Lord and they were singing to Him. And it was really this interesting kind of thing as a new believer to observe that because on the one hand, It's like you can't look away from that. When someone is really worshiping and somebody that's a baby believer, it's like I couldn't take my eyes off of that, that type of expression of love to God. And at the same time, because of that intimacy between the person that's worshiping and between God I felt like I was violating that intimacy by looking and then you begin to worship God for yourself and that was my exposure to Calvary Chapel got plugged in at Dana Point there was a group of people that were reaching out to Cal uh, down in Oceanside sharing the gospel there was a church plant that got started there and that's where I was after just four weeks of being at Dana Point I was with this small group of people four or five families in Dana I mean in Oceanside that that's where Calvary Chapel Oceanside got started and met my wife there a couple weeks we'll be celebrating 40 years of marriage it's been a long and hard 40 years of marriage for her. <laughs> it's been wonderful. And um, 
we met uh, Calvary Chapel pastor at the time, uh, Skip Heitzig, and we ended up moving to Albuquerque after about five years of marriage. We helped with a church plant in Santa Fe. And then we moved back home here for me, Minnesota, in 1988 and started with our Bible study at home. And like many of the Calvary chapels in our Midwest area, we're not a big fellowship. But there's nothing better that I would rather do than to serve the Lord and to be in ministry and just to do whatever he calls us to do. It is a great honor and privilege. And I was very blessed that Don asked me to come down and, and share. I, I know that um, he knows a lot of people and has other people that, get, that probably could have filled in, but it's a, a pleasure and a privilege to be here. So all that being said, we're in Hebrews chapter 13. I love this particular chapter of God's Word because it's one of those sections of Scripture that the writer of Hebrews, he, he wraps up everything. And there is debate as to who the writer of Hebrews is because at the beginning of the epistle it doesn't tell us. And there are those that will say, you know, it's interesting, there are those that will say, well, it's Timothy because at the end, and you'll see this when we get to the end of chapter 13, and even, you know, some of the Bibles. I, you know, one thing I should explain to you, I do teach from an old King James version of the Bible. I've tried other versions, and it's not like a King James. It's just that this is what I'm comfortable with. This is kind of, I, I swim in the old King James. I love it. Um, matter of fact, when we were in Santa Fe, the first time the pastor there asked me to fill in, I, I said that to our, the, the church at Calvary Chapel, Santa Fe. I said, I'm going to be teaching from Old King James. They thought I was telling a joke. I said, no. And then over the years, too, Skip Heitzig, who I've been friends with and from time to time would see at conferences, he'd always see my Bible, and he'd always thumb through it, and he always looks at the front. When are you going to get a newer translation of the Bible? It's like, well, Skip, I just, I, I love the beauty of it. And I love, I actually gave our fellowship one time an opportunity. I taught for a, a year, either an NIV or, or New King James. And, and at the end of that year, I, 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 normally as a pastor, I don't take people's, you know, okay, show of hands, who wants me to teach from? But it was overwhelming that they liked that I taught from the old King James because they said with our newer translations, we can read it. And we understand what it says, but I love how with the old King James, sometimes the words that are no longer used or when you look up the meaning of those words or they're explained in greater depth, then you have a much fuller understanding of what the writer of what God's word is saying in this section. And so I am telling you, I'm teaching old King James. Sometimes I will on the fly change some of the archaic words, like one of the words that's going to be used in chapter 13 here is the word conversation, and it really just means manner of living. But um, sometimes I will do that, and you'll see that. But it's believed that the, the author of Hebrews is either Timothy, like I said, at the end of my Bible, it actually, at the end of the chapter, it says, written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy. So old King James there, at least the Cambridge book company, Bible company thought that it was Timothy. There are others that will say it's Paul. We really don't know, and I don't know that it's all that important, but there's so much about it that seems like Paul. But after laying out everything, one of the things that is great about many times the end of an epistle, especially the ones that Paul writes, is he kind of gets to the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, the exhortations, the what does now what I have been writing about, what does that translate into your daily living, the application, being a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. So chapter 13 begins with, let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, thereby some have entertained angels unaware. One of the things that was important, especially in the early church, was hospitality and that demonstration of love. And one of the ways that love would be demonstrated is if somebody needed a place to stay. People would travel. You see that in the Old Testament. Examples of that. But it's interesting because the writer of Hebrews says, 
be careful not to forget to entertain strangers because some have entertained angels unaware. Sometimes people have taken people into their homes and not realized that they're messengers of God. You see that with Abraham. I think it's in Genesis chapter, I want to say 18, and I've got it in my notes, but I'm not going to look down. And then you see that also with Lot, when the two angels that are coming to check out Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot doesn't realize that these guys are angels, and he takes them into his home. So the writer of Hebrews is actually saying, for us, many times, we don't realize that sometimes, some of us, I, I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever entertained an angel. I could say I'm married to an angel, but that would just be being, buttering my wife up. Actually, when we go out to dinner, at the end of the dinner, they always ask, would you like dessert? And I always respond with, I married dessert. So, but you know, all these boom, boom exhortations. He says in verse three, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Remember those people that are suffering for Christ. And maybe here in our country, we don't suffer as much as in some of the other countries, maybe even in the Muslim countries where people are Christians are persecuted and put to, put to death for their faith. Matter of fact, even too, if you get a chance, if you've never read through it, read Fox's Book of Martyrs, things that believers have suffered throughout history. But he says, remember them. He talks about marriage in verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all. And the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Again, make sure that your marriages are strong. Make sure that you avoid sexual sin. And then he says in verse 5, and like I said, this is one of those archaic words, let your conversation, or as I said, manner of living. But I love the fact that the old King James, when you think about how you live communicates something. And he says, let your conversation be without covetousness. It's that idea of, and again, two of the commandments of the 10 have to do with coveting. You're not to covet what your neighbor has, and you're not to covet your neighbor's wife. It's that strong desire to have something that someone else has. And he says, let your manner of living, let how you live as a Christian be without covetousness. You know, one of the things I think Paul mentions this in one of his epistles, he says that um, covetousness is idolatry. Sometimes that desire for something is so great, I ended up I end up putting it on a pedestal and it rivals then the love or the affection or the desire that we should have for God. You might think, well, you know, covet, I never act on it. It's just there in my heart. Well, you know what? That's where the origins of sin are. But he, he warns against covetousness and he also says to be content, the rest of verse 5, be content with such as you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is what God would say to Joshua when he is taking over uh, the mantle of leading God's people into the promised land after Moses has been taken up or actually dies before he is, has a chance to go into that promised land. But he promises Joshua in the opening chapters, just the same way I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I promise to never leave you or forsake you. And that's one of the things that we have as believers, a promise. You know, when I accepted Jesus, one of the things I knew, and my boss calls up his wife, hey, hey, Mike, you know, they've been praying for me. Mike, Mike just accepted the Lord. And his wife Donna gets on the phone, wants to talk to me. And, and again, I'm just, my head is spinning from everything that's just happening. But the first thing that Donna says to me, so Mike, where is Jesus? And, uh, you know, prankster that I am, I wanted to say, why is he lost? But she was looking for that answer. He's in my heart, and that's the answer that I gave her. But that's the same thing that God says. That's the same thing Jesus says. In John chapter 14, he says, My Father and I, we will come and we will make our abode, our dwelling place in you. 
And what he says then, as it relates to covetousness, and here's the thing, when you have Jesus, when you have God, that should satisfy every desire that we have. We should be content with the choices of the things that God gives us and he says to be content with those things that you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we might boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Even when it comes to trials or circumstances that we might have difficulty navigating, the fact that the Lord is with us, there is a great comfort and satisfaction knowing that I don't have to worry about those things. Verse 7. And the writer of Hebrews now is going to introduce something that he is going to weave through the rest of the closing of this chapter and of the epistle. He says, remember those that have the rule over you. Remember those that have the rule over you. I, in the NIV, I mean, not the NIV, yeah, actually in the NIV, you got it right here. Uh, Verse 7, remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. But it says, remember those that have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, their manner of living, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. I'm going to come back to that because there are three times that the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about those that have the rule over you. Those that are your leaders, in verse 17, he's going to say, Obey them that have the rule over you, over you and submit, for they watch for your souls. And then he closes in verse 24 where he says, Old King James says, Salute all them that have the rule over you. He's going to weave the importance of leadership. I believe he's talking about pastors and teachers and deacons and elders and those that are in ministry especially ministering to the body of Christ. But the writer of Hebrews, and one of the things I've found about this particular chapter, this is the kind of message that a visiting pastor can come in and give. Because, you know what, if, a, if I as a pastor give this message, and I, and I do, I mean, we do, I have gone through this message with my own congregation, with our own fellowship, just because, you know what, we teach through all, the, all of God's word. But it almost sounds self-serving for me as a pastor to say, remember those who have the rule over you. Obey those that have the rule over you. you know, salute those that have the rule over you. And it kind of says, well, of course, Mike, you're going to say those things because it benefits you. You're the pastor. But I want you to, and, and I'll dig into it in just a little bit, a little bit more about it. Because it's something that I think initially our flesh kind of bristles at the idea of somebody telling me to do something else as far as it relates to submitting to others. I mean, we have this probably independence. I know I do. We have this independence that we find it difficult to submit. You know, it's one of the things, too, when it comes to, and I'm doing some premarital counseling now with a few couples that I'll be officiating some weddings this, this year. And on the subject of the roles that God has called husbands and wives. Now, one thing I will say, it's amazing how well husbands know what the wife's responsibility is. I've done marriage counseling where couples come into my office is just like and the husband is just complaining she just doesn't submit to me and then the wife again too the wife knows what her husband's responsible he doesn't love me the way the lord loves his church and is willing to sacrifice himself for me i mean we know what each other are supposed to do instead of focusing on what i'm supposed to do but i'm going to get to that in a second verse 9 be not carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Not with meats, which if he's giving an example now of something that at the time they were carried away with, this occupation of what you ate. He says, not with meats. Matter of fact, Paul would address this in Romans chapter 14. For those people that, again, observe 
particular holidays and elevate particular religious holidays above others, or even particular dietary, you know, as a means to be more spiritual or closer to God. And you can't deny the fact in the Old Testament, God did specifically want his people to avoid certain foods. For the reasons probably that it was healthier and better for them. And again, that's a bigger picture issue, but I'll come back to that. But he, he says not to be carried away with various and strange doctrines. And one of the things that guards people from various and strange doctrines is that you know what God's word says. In the book of Acts, Paul commends the Bereans. He says they were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they searched the scripture to see whether or not the things that the apostle Paul was teaching were true or were so. You know, one thing too, we've all seen this. I mean, I remember one time the news doing this story of this church. It was in the south. And, you know, they take that portion of scripture. I think it's in Matthew or Mark's gospel where Jesus is commissioning the disciples to go in all the world. But he, he, he says that you'll be protected, basically. He says that, you know what, no harm will come to you. He says if you take up ser serpents and are bit by them, nothing's going to happen. In the book of Acts, Paul gets bit by a serpent. The people are waiting for Paul to, to fall over and die, but he doesn't. But there, there was this one church, one time, this is years ago, I saw this in the news. And again, the, the news focuses on it because it was just crazy. These, the church kept venomous snakes. And then on one Sunday out of the month, as a part of the worship service, this group of people come out and they're holding these very poisonous snakes and dancing around with snakes and worshiping God. But see, you know what? Our faith is so strong. And inevitably, someone from time to time would get bit. Sometimes people would die. Sometimes they wouldn't. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he talks about various and strange doctrines. You know, no matter what, and when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I mean, everything that God has in his word can be synthesized down to our expression of love for God, but our expression of love for each other's. And not only that, we're not only to love God and to love our brothers, but we're also to love the lost, the non-believer. And in doing that, it is a way that people are drawn into the family or the kingdom of God. But he says, don't get carried away with all these crazy things. Your heart should be established in grace. The end result, I mean, he writes, the writer of Hebrews writes to the Galatians because they ended up gravitating back towards the things of the law, somehow earning their salvation. And he says, if that's the case, then he uses the expression, I think it's in chapter 3, he says, you've fallen from grace. If you're going to trust in what you do or what you think or all those things instead of trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace that none of us deserves, then you know what, you're, if you're going to trust in those other things other than the grace of God, then you know what, you're fallen from grace. Verse 10, he says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Old Testament. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify or make his people holy with his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. They took Jesus outside of Jerusalem, and he was crucified. He says in let us, verse, verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. See, when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, sometimes you will also be reproached for that just like my boss who shared the gospel with me. He loved the Lord. He used to come to work with a box of Pastor Chuck Smith's tapes, cassettes, and he would play them at lunchtime, and he would try to entice us by feeding us. 
You know, if you were in the military, you know what it's like. You go to the chow hall, you wait for an hour, 45 minutes to get in the chow hall, you eat, and then you got to go back to work. He would have food in the refrigerator. He would have these great Italian sandwiches that he would make with just, I grew up here in Minnesota. At, in the 70s, the 60s, I never heard of prosciutto or provolone or even pastrami. I mean, we had ham sandwiches. Carl, what is it, budding? I always say budding. I get it wrong. Thinly shaved meats, you know, turkey, ham, maybe roast beef if my parents were getting, my mom was getting exotic. But Sam would offer us lunch. What's it? Do I have, no, you don't have to pay anything. But you do have to listen to a cassette with me. And he was wise. He used food evangelism to get us. But he says that, you know, again, he was, he was, people in our unit, they just felt convicted around him. Even our commanding officer tried to get rid of him because of the witness that he had in sharing the gospel with our unit. There were about 60 guys in our unit. Sam had been, and again, if you know anything about the military, Sam had been, before he was a weather forecaster, he had been in Marine Corps reconnaissance. He was Marine Corps recon. That's kind of like the Navy SEALs. That is the elite. Those are the, those, are the, those are the guys that are the killers. Those are the guys that have ice water running through their veins. And yet when I knew Sam, he was this teddy bear. He'd come to work wearing corduroy pants and slippers and a flannel shirt. And then he would pull his desk drawer open and unroll his uniform and put it on in the van units that we were working in. People did not like Sam for a lot of reasons. And maybe for you, when you've come to Christ or you've made, if that kind of falls into, am I going to follow or not follow Jesus? Sometimes one of the things that we weigh out, and I know I remember thinking, you know, is this crazy to do this? And it is crazy because the rest of the world won't do it. Because there is a cost. There is a cost in following Jesus and following what God's word says. And as the days continue to, to progress, it seems like anybody who believes in things that are biblical, I mean, our society over the last probably four to five decades has systematically, whether again, whether it's the society or it's just the world or it's again to the enemy, the, Satan working kind of behind the scenes on things, but anything that might be sound biblical or good, it's almost like you're crazy to think those kinds of things now. You're, you're the problem. Christians are the problem. Jesus Christ is the solution to all the problems that this world has. But he says in verse 14, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Hope, promise of heaven. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Again, it talks about that hope that every one of the patriarchs had. It says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, the giving of thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, communicate old King James word, share what you have with the poor, the less fortunate. Forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Here's the second time that he's going to introduce then those that have the rule over you. Obey them. You know, the first time he says, remember those that have spoken the word of God and follow their end of their manner of living. Obey those that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you, the rather do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace, verse 20, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect or complete in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, allow, suffer, Old King James says suffer, but it means in this context, to allow the word of exhortation. 
You know, when someone some at times are exhorted, it's not always the things that we want to hear. Sometimes an exhortation, again, is really, it's contrary to what I want to hear. And that's why there are so many churches that have left off the teaching all of God's word. Because, again, when you teach all of God's word, the people are going to be uncomfortable with some of the things that God says in his word. So churches have learned, well, you know what, I'll just focus on the warm, fuzzy, good-feeling messages. But he says, allow the word of exhortation. And he even says it in reference to the epistle that he has written. He says, for I've written a letter unto you in few words. The, the idea is that even though the, the book of Hebrews is 13 chapters, it was a letter that was sent. It's small in comparison to all the other things, the truths, and even sometimes the exhortations that need to take place even within the body of Christ. Allow that. He says, Know ye, verse 23, that our brother Timothy is, is set at liberty, with whom if he come shortly I will see you. That's why some commentators and Bible teachers and scholars think that this was written by Timothy. They think he's using this little literary tool of speaking about himself in the third person. You see that used in the Gospels as well. You see Luke using it. And you see it in other places in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Sometimes, again, too, that it's used that way so that, you know, you're reading the, the, the story or at least the message here. But he says then in verse 24, Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all saints, they of Italy salute you. Grace be to you all. Amen. So as I mentioned, I, I wanted to come back to three things that relate to leadership. Over the years as a pastor, being involved with a couple of church plants, but also coming up here to Minnesota and, and getting started and then other Calvaries following afterwards. Um, and being on church boards, some of the Calvary Chapel church boards. Sometimes even being called upon when churches are going through either transition or some type of problem or issue. Sometimes the pastor will give me a call or sometimes the board that is remaining because a pastor has either been removed or has moved on then getting called. You know, as a, a, a pastor, you know, I can give you the pastor's perspective. And I also understand the church pew perspective. But the writer of Hebrews says three particular things, and I just want to break it down into three simple things that he says, and even the necessity for leadership. Now, being in the Marine Corps, I understood it. I understood that type of structure, and you could say, Mike, we're not in the military. Okay, maybe the kids say, we're in God's army. I might never, how the kid's song goes, I love that. Ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. But I'm in the Lord's army, yes, sir. But he says, remember those that have the rule over you. And within the body of Christ, there is that necessity. Even in the spiritual gifts, when it's mentioned, there is that gift of pastors and teachers that is mentioned in Ephesians that... Paul says that he descended first into the depths of hell, and then he ascended and he gave gifts unto men, and he named some of those gifts, but he talks about pastor-teachers. Your pastor and the leadership of this church are, in a sense, a gift to the church. And maybe some people in some churches would say, well, you don't know our pastor. That's not what's important. You know, one of the things, too, and I, I find, again, too, what God's word says, sometimes people take this idea of submission and they take it to the nth degree that they somehow think, I have to be a doormat. Husbands and wives, again, to the roles that they've called to. You know, one of the things, and you may have seen the, the Jesus Revolution movie. Um, I enjoyed it. 
not completely accurate, or not, I guess, some of the portrayals. I would have liked to see Pastor Chuck portrayed a little differently, and I would have liked to have seen Kay portrayed a little differently, and, and some of the different things. But it's interesting because, you know, in the early days, even of the Jesus movement, and understanding, too, what God's Word says about submission, there were some of the hippies that were still struggling with drugs. And some of the, the lifestyles that they came out of, and yet they, they gravitated to what, this, what God's word says. Well, you know, wives have to submit to their husband. Well, does that mean if your husband tells you to go rob a bank, you have to do that? Because back in, the, in those days, some of the hippies were telling their wives, you know, to prostitute themselves so that they could have money so they could buy drugs and yet still professing to be believers. There's a common sense. There are boundaries. There are things that are there in God's word. So again, don't bristle at the thought of, you know, leadership. And one of the things really simple for me, and I tell people even in our own fellowship, you know, it's like, if this isn't the place for you, I've had people come visit our church, and they love the church, first Oh, few times. It's the best church ever. I love this. I'm going to come here for the rest of my life. And two, three Sundays later, they're gone. You know, uh, it's kind of funny. Yeah, you come to after 33 or 35 years in ministry, you kind of you get to know people pretty well, and God gives you some discernment. You know, but here's the thing. He says to remember those that have spoken the word of God. And that word remember doesn't mean you've somehow forgotten. But it, what it means in the Greek, and I'm not even going to try to say the Greek word, is it means to be mindful. One of the places that this particular Greek word is used, and actually I will try to say it, it looks like momentanual. How's that? I'm not even going to say it again because I won't say it the same way. But one of the things that Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, when they're worried about not having food for their journey, Jesus says in verse 9, Do you not understand? Neither remember. Momentuno. <laughs> the five loaves and the 5,000, how many baskets you took up. Don't you remember? You know, it's amazing the things we can remember. I not only can remember my social security number, but I remember my f frequent flyer number from Delta. I have got my Hilton Honors, because that's when we travel, that's where we stay. I've got that memorized. I've got my, my wife's, not only her social security number memorized, but her Delta Sky Miles number memorized. I mean, I got this information memorized, but it's amazing how sometimes going through trials, I forget the faithfulness of God or that God has a plan. In some ways, I think we all either become selective in our memory or we become fearful. That the fear is so great that we don't remember. And I think when it comes to relationships, especially when it comes to pastor and their flock and the relationships sometimes that we have with our shepherds, in that way that it's used there, remember, it means to be mindful of them. To take into consideration. One thing I will say is that, even with Don and Teresa, but every pastor that I've ever known, they've made great sacrifices to be a pastor. They're sacrificing their time. They're sacrificing their families. They're living in a punch bowl. They are constantly being barraged with opinions as to how things should be done. Like trying to please everyone or herd a bunch of cats. One time, matter of fact, uh, again, and I'm grateful that over the years, you know, the, the types of problems that we've had over the years have just kind of fallen away. I remember one time having this discussion with uh, one of the elders at Calvary Chapel Oceanside and his wife, and they were dealing with some conflict in the church at the time, and, and, and his wife wisely once said, you know, Mike, sometimes when it comes to conflict, it gets to the point where somebody's got to leave, and she says, and it's not going to be me. <laughs> Another guy in our own fellowship a couple of years back when we had somebody causing some problems. And sometimes the intentions are good. So understand, I'm not like, Whoa. I mean, some people, their motives are, they in their heart think that they're doing what's right. 
But I remember him saying to me, he says, Mike, being a pastor is like being a bus driver. He says, people get on the bus and people get off the bus. You just can't take it personally. And, and I, I appreciated that. But he says, remember them. And he says, who have spoken the word of God. So he doesn't say remember them only if they're perfect or only if they don't have any flaws or only if they never get angry or upset or only if they make decisions that you don't agree with. He just simply says, remember them, be mindful, think, consider them and the sacrifices that they've made because they've spoken to you the word of God. And he says, whose faith follow? It takes faith to be a pastor. And you can just Google this and look up the statistics of the longevity of pastors. A lot of times, I remember this one Gallup study poll that came out that it said, regardless of the size of the church, it could be a church of 50 or it could be a church of 500 or a church of 5,000. Whenever a pastor has given up or quit or left, it's usually can be attributed to seven people. Like seven troublemakers or people that are constantly being a problem or calling the pastor on the carpet or doing whatever. And, and all of a sudden they just get to that, you know, kind of like Moses in the wilderness, that breaking point, you know, where instead of going out and speaking to the rock, he's smiting the rock with his stick, like a hockey player going over the plexiglass with his stick. I can relate to that. But he says that they've spoken God's word to you, whose faith follow. And he also, I love this because he says, considering the not current manner of living, but he says, consider the end of their conversation, the manner of living. We as pastors might not be perfect, but in the end, this is what I'm going for. Hebrews chapter 11, heavenly. That's where my home is. And if that's where your pastor or your leader or your leadership is going, if they're faithful to teach the word of God and they have a faith and their end is that, then remember them. The second thing he says there in verse 17 is to obey. Obey those that have the rule over you and submit. Now, again, submission is not, it's almost as if it's this word that people have such great difficulty with. But he gives the reason, and I'll come back to both obey and to submit, but he says, they watch for your souls. Those leaders, those rulers over you, they are watching for your soul, for your benefit. You know, in James, in his epistle, he says not to be many masters, leaders. Because he says they will receive the greater judgment, condemnation, if it comes down to that. See, being a pastor or teacher, now you've taken on the responsibility of being accountable to God for what you do. You might worry, again, when I was single, being a Christian, and again, it's to follow Jesus, there's a blessing, but there's trials and things that come up. But I thought, okay, being single, that's, and a Christian, it's like, wow, this is great. I don't have to worry about anybody else but me. Then you get married. Okay, now I got to worry about me and my wife. And then you have kids. And now I'm concerned and responsible not only for myself, my wife, and our children, but then you're in ministry as a pastor. And now I'm responsible for the flock that follows me. I remember there was, I think in lectures to my student, there was a young pastor that came to Spurgeon and complained about the size of his church. He didn't feel like his church was as big as he deserved. I love pastoring a small church. That's all I can handle. It is. And Spurgeon's response to the young pastor or minister was, how many people do you have in your congregation, your church? And he said, about 100. And Spurgeon said to him, I think 100 souls is more than enough to be accountable when you stand before God and have to give an account. But he says to obey them. They have to give an account for your soul 
that they might do it with joy and not with grief, that's unprofitable for you. So getting back to the word obey. The word in the Greek is pethio. And it doesn't mean just simply I obey or I submit. This is the rule. This is the, you know, what it means then is to persuade. To be persuaded in your own heart, your own mind. You know, there's, I think about this, there's two types of obedience or submission as well. There's the kind that's forced upon you. And we, we, you know, you're driving along and uh, you're, you see those red lights turn on in your rearview mirror and all of a sudden you've got a, an officer, whether it's a police officer or highway patrol, and we obey. We're forced to. We know what the laws say. And I was, yes, I was speeding. And we get pulled over. We're forced to do that. There's that type of obedience and submission. But then there's the type of obedience and sub submission that I believe that the writer of Hebrews is talking here about based upon the word, to be persuaded, to know. And even when I mentioned submission and I mentioned the two roles that husbands and wives have, one of the things that's interesting to me is that when somebody loves you so much, like Jesus loved you so much, loved me so much, that he would lay down his life to keep me from an eternity of suffering in hell? I want to submit to that kind of love. It's not something that's forced upon me. It's something that in my own heart and mind, I've been persuaded by the demonstration of love. Husbands and wives, it's the same thing. When a wife knows that her husband loves him, loves her that much, then it's something that really comes very spiritual, but very naturally, spiritually speaking. I have no problems then submitting to a husband that puts my needs first, is willing to sacrifice, lay down his life. I might not always understand you know, all the things, the decisions that he makes, but I'm going to support that because of that demonstration of love. And in a way, what the writer of Hebrews then is saying about those that have the rule over you, to submit to them, it's not a forced submission. It is a, a submission that then I have been persuaded to do it because, first of all, they have to give an account for me when they stand before God. But the other thing that's interesting, and the, he says that it's almost as if there's a, a consequence if you don't, that they might do it with joy, not with grief. That's unprofitable for you. One of the things you see, an example of this in the Old Testament, is with Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? And time and time again, they're grumbling and complaining. They have great difficulty submitting to Moses because God is telling Moses what to do, how to lead, and all these different things. Excuse me. And when they had problems submitting to Moses, what happens? God would intervene. That's not good for the congregation when God has to be the one that starts intervening in situations where people, and again, I'm not talking about this blind submission, whatever the pastor says, I will do. No, again, if this, you know, I don't want to sound callous, but sometimes it really is a blessing when people don't recognize the love and the commitment and the sacrifice that their pastors have made for them. And they're just simply thinking about themselves. But the last thing that's mentioned is to salute. And it's not, a, even though it sounds like a military term, in the Greek there, for the word salute, means to draw to oneself. Probably even more literally, it means to embrace. I'll just read a, a few lines here from a, probably something that I cut and pasted in my notes years ago. But it says, used of those accosting anyone. You know what it means to accost somebody. You're walking along, they grab you, they snatch you, and they throw you in your car. Well, again, the idea is, is that it's something that almost is, again, it is this show by force and by embrace. 
We're Minnesotans, right? I mean, I grew up here. Even though my last name's Fernandez, I went to private schools up in the cities. I dated a girl who was German. That is the, the least demonstrative culture, I think. <laughs> it's like, sometimes you gotta hug somebody that's German and their arms are like pasted to their hips. I'm the only one putting my arm around them. One thing I'll say though too about the beauty and the wisdom of what he is closing with as far as the saluting or the embracing. When my wife and I mentioned we're coming up on 40 years, but the first year or two we had our normal marital spats and fights. One of the things the scripture says is not to let the sun go down upon your wrath. So again, we knew that we can't be mad at each other more than one day. Sometimes I'd hope for those fights to take place. I'd think, okay, we're going to bed. My wife would quote that. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Hey, we started fighting when the sun was down. I have till tomorrow. <laughs> but there were times where she was just... It takes a lot. My wife does have a high threshold of, of pain that she can endure. It takes a lot for her to get upset or mad at me. She's very gracious. But there were times where I could tell that she was really upset with me. And I'd say, come here. Yeah. I'd say, hold my hands. Or sometimes I would just put my arms around her. And at first she resists that, right? I'd say, we'd sit across the table, because my wife, when she gets upset with me, she starts doing housework. She avoids things. When I get upset, I take a nap. I just check out. I'm just like, I don't want to deal with this. Let me Wake me up in a couple of hours. But there were times that in my, I don't want to say wisdom, things I figured out, We'd sit across the table and I'd say, look at me and hold my hands. And she does not want to because she's mad at me. But you can't look at someone and hold their hands and stay mad at them. And when I think about the embracing here, you know, and even though maybe sometimes as a culture, I'll just read, used uh, of those accosting one to sit, uh, those who visit one and see him a little while and then departing almost immediately afterwards to pay respect to a distinguished person by visiting him, of those who greet one another and meet in the way in their travels, a salutation was made not merely by a slight gesture or a few words. Kind of like, you're walking, you see somebody, you kind of do that head nod thing, or, hey. But it says, but generally, this is again to explaining the word, embracing and kissing. Many times a journey would be delayed by frequent saluting. I just can't get to where I'm going because I'm having to hug everybody on my way. It's kind of like when worship is over, at least in our church, or even on a Sunday morning, it's just like, I just want to sit down in a quiet place and everybody wants to come up and hug me and talk to me. And I'm fine with that. I love that. But it says then, those three things are a great reminder of a relationship with the shepherd of your church. And Don didn't pay me to do this or say this. Matter of fact, I, I love sharing these things because I know how important they are in the body of Christ. I know how important there is to be, and I'll just simply close with this one last illustration, and then we will prepare to take communion. But it's in the book of Judges. It's when God tells Gideon to go out to fight against um, the Midianites. It's chapter 7 of the book of Judges. Gideon calls from the different tribes, the army to assemble. There's a total of 32,000 that show up. Of the 32,000, they are way outnumbered, I think by about five to one. Their enemies already outnumber them. Even though Israel's got 32,000, the enemy's got five times that many soldiers. But God says, I know these people, and they've got way too much pride 
they will think that if they defeat the Midianites, they will think that it was somehow they were the best fighting force that was ever assembled, and they will take credit for that victory. And God then, it's interesting because God tells Midian, I mean not Midian, Gideon, to do what Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 8, there's an instruction. Before the armies of Israel go out to war, if there's anybody who's been married for less than a year, if there's anybody that has bought a new farm and hasn't eaten up the crops, has anybody taken a wife or is betrothed to be married to a wife, again, too, you're dismissed from duty. But in the end, the very last thing that would dismiss somebody from going out to battle was, if you're fearful and afraid, if you're worried about dying out on the battlefield, if you're going to turn and run in the heat of the battle, then please go home because it's far better. The scripture even explains it. It's far better to have a smaller fighting force and everybody is committed and their faith and their eyes are fixed upon God and they're not worried about the outcome. And Gideon does this. 22,000 people leave. And Gideon's probably thinking, well, I got 10,000 really committed people. Okay, Lord, we got 10,000. God says, too many. You're still going to take credit. Take them down to the brook, have them drink the water. Pay attention to how they're drinking the water. And there were those that lapped the water up with their faces in the water like a dog. And there were those that cupped the water, brought it up to their face. And in the end, Gideon, as he is keeping track, he's thinking, okay, 9,700 did it one way and the 300 did another way. Okay, I can still work with 9,700. God says, no, the, the 300. I mean, God can accomplish things when there is that unity that mindset and it's in the end it's god that gets the glory isn't it 